Wan smoke, broken, the heretics. When we settled here along the Silver Quick, amidst the meadows of wildflowers and marigold, we believed ourselves to be safe from the threats of the evil spirits whom now surround our shadowed king. We were sorely mistaken. Here, as was true in the north, devils lurk in every dark corner. Only now we are without the king's men for protection, and our militias are not enough. Therefore, it hath been determined by the church of his wise patriarch to return to the old ways, a boy and girl born under a paired sun and moon, and whom are scarred by the blessing of the patriarch, shall be raised together as defenders of the faith. They shall be holy warriors, champion and shield maiden. From the historical accounts of Turnpin, response to the Night of Terror. I cling on to the cold steel bars, surprised to find they're not silver. Though I suppose Marigold has fallen on hard times. They have to do what they can to keep their coffers full, even if that means selling off their hob gibbets and imprisoning innocents on the chances they'll turn a profit on the gremlin slave market. We won't. Haven't for days now. I've lost count of how many in the constant flicker of oil lamps burning the odor of lavender and sage. It makes me sick. Breathing the smoke and swaying on chains, unable to sit or lay inside the tiny cage, my legs throbbing. It makes me think, how did we get here in the first place? I should have seen the signs that morning broken and I paid Grant a visit. I'd never been inside South's jailhouse before, let alone the constable's office. It's located not far from the market, built right into the biggest hill in town. The only entrance, a door of iron bars that goes straight underground where the prisoners are held. Something that's sure to change in the coming years given the surrounding construction. The council agreed to erect the town hall around the jailhouse and to incorporate it as an interior office, barracks, and dungeon. It made me wonder as Broken and I left our empty wheelbarrow outside the snow-shoveled construction zone if one day South wouldn't have walls raised around it as well. Then we'll be no different than these two, I thought, looking through the iron bars to a couple of drunks locked up in the same holding cell. They were coal miners, both covered in black dust and reeking of barley wine, fast asleep, a peaceful look on their faces. Probably arrested for public intoxication, a more and more common occurrence since the hell gates closed. Apart from them, the place reminded me too much of Bilar's basement, the only difference being a finished wooden floor. The rest was the same. Dimly lit, save for what sun shined from outside. A large iron cell, brick interior walls, and a high raftered ceiling. Inside, a short corridor led to a ladder rather than stairs. Next to that leaned a man. One I didn't recognize by face or voice, though he certainly recognized us. Halt! He called out and crossed the corridor, clopping in leather boots with high wooden heels. Even still, he was no taller than me, though he was wider by half and just as thick with muscle as with fat filling the features around his jaw and gut. When he spoke, the effort seemed to pink in his complexion beneath his dark, receding hair and where his thick neck folded into the collar of his jerkin. What's this then? Well, I'll be. It's the loonies already. When young man Grant stuck me on guard duty, I didn't think I'd get to lay eyes on the likes of you for a time. Broken tugged at my sleeve, an old habit of hers from when she was seer to the blind and vengeful lord of fear. Those boots, they're just like what the ladies wear in Glassboro. We'll have more than enough money once we pick up my present. Do you think we could buy some? For me? Please, Canty. It's your money to spend. Get a pair if you really want, but they won't be as fun as they look, I said, watching her scratch absent-mindedly at her dirty bandages.
We'd have to stop by the Apothecary's Guild before heading home. It'll give Chaka some more time to rout out any trolls we missed, I told myself, trying to keep positive. Yet the thought of further delays made me slump in exhaustion. After the prior night's fight with the Fae, the transmutation of the Alkahest, then a morning on the market, I was sore as I was starved, not to mention my dull, throbbing headache, and the deputy only made that worse. What are you two heretics doing in this holy place of law and order? Let us in. We're here to see Grant about some money the town owes us, the deputy frowned. Looking for alms, are you? I didn't think the constabulary did charity, especially not with pagans. Pagans? Now that was a word I hadn't heard in a while, not since our quest to convince the Marigold Guilds to invest in the dead banker's estate. I felt another tug at my sleeve. Why won't the boots be fun to wear? Because, I answered broken, their soles are hard wood and stiff leather. They'll rub and pinch right through your bandages. Compare that to now. Even with socks, your soft leather shoes bother you. Ehem, <laughs> the lawman coughed. I turned to the deputy. You must be new to town. Let me guess, from Marigold? The question seemed to please the pink man. He grinned. I used to be a patrolman there. Big Deputy Boone, they called me. What gave me away? Your religious prattle. Union Church has no authority here in South. We follow the old king's laws, not those of the wise patriarch. Now are you going to let us in or not? The man's smile melted into his jowls. If I must... But you should know that I've arrested men for disrespectful talk like that when I was a lawman of the Holy City. You're not one anymore, though, are you? I asked and watched him sweat, fumbling with the key on his belt. Clearly, he said, I can't protect two places at once. If you must know, I relocated because of the tithes. Not that I mind contributing to the church, mind you. But all constabulary pay was cut at the same time, and we lost several trained laborers who decided to brave the pagan north. It goes without saying that taxes had to match the amount we lost in people. I just couldn't afford to live in the city anymore, so I thought I'd lend my talents somewhere that could spare to reward them. Broken yawned. Can we talk to Grant now? It's really important, Deputy Boone scowled. Greedy beggars. By pagan law, I can't stop you. Just be quick about it, and I don't want to see you in here all the time, always asking for handouts. He stuck the heavy, rusted key into the door. Its mechanism screeched, and its hinges whinged open. Broken, and I marched inside. Go on ahead, I told the girl, and waited till she was up the ladder before replying to the thick-headed lawman's accusation. You need a better pair of ears, Deputy Pinkman. I said that the town owes us. But telling the zealot how it is wasn't enough. I wanted to put that piglet in his place, to make him wish he were one of those happy drunks slumbering safely behind a wall of iron bars. My dull headache intensified at the brand on my forehead, sharp, distinct pains in the shape of an eye within a circle, within a triangle, within a triangle, inverted. And in my left eye socket I felt the pinprick of light augment its emanation, could see the beam where it alighted on the sweaty man's brow. In the combined voices of King Ogier and my former self, I said to him, and let's get something else straight. If you speak disrespectfully to me or broken again, I'll rend you down to your body's base elements and feed what's left to the fairies and hobs. The deputy turned from pink to troglodyte pale, sweat soaking his face and neck, darkening under his arms and on the crotch of his trousers. You understand? He nodded, too terrified to speak, having seen into the depths of the eye of Amgine. Good. Now if you'll politely piss off, I've got business with the official. 
I finished with him and started up the rungs. Thinking back on it now, it's obvious it wasn't me in control of my speech. But at the time, I'd wanted so badly to make that arrogant pig pay for his flagrant overestimation of himself that, even now as I remember it, the soul of the old king, the aspect of him I allowed to take possession in order to transmute the alkahest, inhabits me without need of the sword through my former self, the part of me that I had forgiven. I thought forgiveness meant that I'd be free. Instead, it seems I'm more vulnerable than ever before to temptations of judgment, of vengeance, of evil. The cost of opening the magnum opus. Was it worth it? I left the question in shame below and followed broken up the ladder through the jailhouse's second floor. Standard south timber, wattle and daub. Nothing too fancy, just a bunch of bunks and footlockers, some stools, and a barren supper table in the center. Above that was the constable's office. The place was a lot less organized than I imagined it would be. Everywhere along the walls were small, stacked crates stuffed with documents, contracts, records, and ledgers. Some had locks. Likely they were old evidence boxes for the town's petty crimes. For the more serious offenses and South's taxes, there was a massive steel safe so big that it must have been constructed in this room. I guess that's one way to keep assets secure, I thought, though at that moment, the safe door hung completely ajar. Inside were bags of coins, each about the size of my head, neatly stacked evidence boxes, a pile of papers on an open-faced tray, and a portrait of a woman. Who is that? I asked mindlessly. Grant answered from behind a desk piled high with cartographs and contracts, his hard, flush complexion poking around Broken's hat. The girl sat among a row of chairs set in front of his desk. That is a portrait of Amandine, late wife of the former constable, and... He paused, looked at the painting, then to the silvery-barreled death wand laid across his father's desk. And my mother, he finished, like he'd been deflated, his dark eyes and cropped hair and clean-shaven jaw all softened at once. For a moment, the likeness between man and portrait become obvious. Eyes, nose, cheekbones, and coloring mirrored one another. Even their age seemed exactly the same. Then I realized what I'd recognized and asked again without thinking. When was this painted? Shortly after she and the constable were married, a few months before I was born. Records say a stranger from overseas stayed a few days in South. He didn't commit any crimes, though several complaints were filed against him for talking queer and staring too long. So the constable brought him in for questioning. It turned out that he was a refugee from the Neverland seeking asylum in Berg. He'd heard rumors from mainland smugglers that Sealand's northmost city was, quote, beautiful as it was remote, filled with ancient landscapes, buildings, and sculptures all preserved from the time of Gotrick the Conqueror. In her diary, Mother said that the constable considered detaining him and sending a letter down to Marigold. He was worried the man might leave a fey curse on his pregnant wife. But then the stranger offered to paint my mother's portrait if father would relax enforcement of the anti-fairy laws. Well, that's suspiciously specific. And he agreed? Grant glanced to the death wand once again, cleared his throat, then said, Yes, I had the same reaction when I first read the documents. Though when I confronted father about it, he explained to me that we'd not had a fairy in South since the village was founded, so he didn't see it as a dereliction of duty. A harmless oversight, he called it, claiming the village's benefit as justification for stretching the letter of the law. 
I don't know that I agree with his decision, though my feelings have no legal standing on the matter, and I suppose he was reasonably cautious in the drafting of the contract. He made certain to specify himself as the only obliged party, and no harm befell South, so who's to say he didn't do his duty? I am, you traitorous, treasonous ingrates, the king hissed between my ears about how that artist was probably an elf, a filthy, half-human, transmogrified hybrid, to want laxer anti-fairy laws or for him to paint so well. It never ends with old Ogier. He just rants on and on about how the fey fool men into trading their independence and discipline for impulsive pleasures and unearned talents. Fortunately for me, I was saved from that particular tirade when Broken suddenly burst with a slew of her own comments and questions. Innocent, though by Grant's grimace, her childish disposition didn't make them any less painful. That was really your mom, she blurted out. But she's so pretty. And she died, you said. That's so sad. How did it happen? And when? Was it a long time ago? Because I don't remember her at all. Nobody answered for a really long while, then for another, until the tension dragged on beyond what any of us could stand. So I apologized to fill the void, then took a chair next to the girl and whispered over my shoulder. You can't just ask people questions like that. Why not? Because, I fumbled for an answer, because it makes people sad. Grant interjected, it's all right, that was twenty years ago. If I can't bear to speak about it by now, then I'm not emotionally fit to serve the township. He tore his eyes from his father's old death wand and stared hard at the image of his young mother. She died due to complications in childbirth. We had no doctor in South at the time, and before someone could be brought up from Marigold, it was too late. Slowly, the constable's eyes closed and his head turned away from the open safe. He sighed, his eyes opened, and he said to us, but that is enough personal conversation. I'm behind on documentation, so we should get on with business. I assumed you came here about the inheritance we discussed, but Ashland's been telling me something about a gang in Glassboro. I sunk into the seat of my chair. We weren't planning on dealing with the Edgar problem until this evening. One more thing to add to the list. I sighed, sat myself upright, and tried to think positive. Two hobs with one silver bullet. I suppose we're here for both. Can we start with the money you owe the girl? Before the constable could respond, Broken added, Conti said it was a present from someone named Ashlyn. Is she like my aunt or something? She asked, scanning the office for clues as to the identity of her mysterious benefactor, missing nothing save for Grant's perplexed face. Because I thought all my family was dead. The constable cleared his throat, glanced to me, then back to the girl. Affirmative, Miss Ashlyn. All your relatives still registered as citizens of South are deceased. As permitted by the law, my father seized their property and withheld a sum to be paid when the inheritor, that's you, Miss Ashlyn, comes of age or makes an appeal with the consent of her legally approved guardian. The girl stared blankly for the length of Grant's answer, blinked occasionally, and winced at each mention of her name as though it were covered in thorns. So Ashlyn isn't my aunt? No, I jumped in, choking back laughter. You're Ashlyn. That's the name your parents gave you. Comprehension lighted in her pale blue eyes, glistening, wet with tears. It wasn't at all what I expected to see, behind her crying, the silhouette of a figure like that in the constable's portrait. Ashlyn, it cooed, soft and warm and drowned in grief. For never in her early years did Broken hear her own name but for her mother's weeping. 
On instinct, the girl reached into her cloak pocket and plucked a fresh crown cap, popped it into her mouth, chewed and swallowed. Her tears slowed, and after a moment she replied, You shouldn't say things like that, Canty. It makes people sad. I'm sorry. I thought it'd be a fun surprise. I didn't know it would. I didn't think... I'm such an idiot. Why didn't I realize? Then the old king weighed in, whispering in my mind, Do not murk your soul with unnecessary guilt. You cannot protect this girl nor anyone else from the tragedy of being. That didn't stop me from trying, though. I'm sorry, I started again, but the mushrooms were already taking effect. The girl's mind's eye had sunken inside where her pure heart sheltered her from the external world. It's all right, she said, looking to Grant, who cleared his throat, still uncomfortable with the child's open consumption of crown. So it's a present for myself, then. Concerning that, the constable began, officially speaking, you are not yet old enough to claim the sum. The registry says you're 11 years old, but the age of majority is 13. So you'll need a legal guardian in order to give consent. I rolled my pale, troglodyte eye. Yeah, we know. Why do you think we're both here? He looked back at me, confused. But the registry doesn't claim you as her legal guardian. So fill out some papers and change them. It isn't so simple, he said, thumbing through a pile of cartographs till he found the one he was looking for. Grant spread it over the desk and began explaining all the various lines and markers. By the end, he had taken several extra minutes to explain that, legally speaking, I wasn't a resident of South because Old Home lay outside the township borders. That meant if I claimed Broken as a ward, she'd forfeit her citizenship and her inheritance along with it. So just extend the borders, I replied, but as soon as I did, I heard the foreboding in Ogier's voice. Not wise, troglodyte. As if in consort with the king, Grant explained why. We could, with your signature, given that you are the last living denizen of Oldholm, incorporate the western fork of the River Deep, Black Lake, and the mountain itself into the township. But I'm duty-bound to inform you that if we do, you'll owe an annual tax every autumn of sixty-two silver and eight copper pieces. Be required to file for permission to continue your mining operation, which will cost an additional fee of forty gold, and must comply with any legal safety standards passed by the town council. And you'll be vulnerable to any warranted searches, seizures, or conscriptions by the town constabulary. Wait a second. Are you saying it wasn't legal that you conscripted us before? It was, so long as you were within the village limits. So now he'd be able to come knocking at my door. And those taxes, do I even make that much in a year? The king was right. It was a terrible idea, so I asked, isn't there another way she can claim the money? Not that I am aware of. Ogier laughed. I glanced toward Broken looking back at me, her big blue glistening eyes begging. How much do I owe Van again? Five hundred gold? What's another fifty? More than I'd make selling coal for a decade, but at the time I was too exhausted to argue. Not that it would have done any good to negotiate with him. Fine, I gave in. I'd promised the girl her present and wasn't going to leave there without that inheritance. So while Grant redrew a few maps and updated the registry, I signed away in scratchy letters the centuries-old sovereignty of the Clan of the Antler and became the legal guardian of a broken little girl. Congratulations, announced the constable. You're now officially kin of Township South. Broken cheered and threw her hat into the air where it spun and fluttered and landed squarely on Grant's head. Hooray! Does that mean I can have my present? The constable answered, It means you're under Canty's custody until you turn 13 years old. She turned to me. So you're like my dad now? Yeah, I guess so. 
I stammered, overwhelmed by the question. I blurted out, what was I before? A crazy cult leader. Can I have my present now? I nodded, not sure how to respond. Nothing had really changed from one second to the other, at least not outside. But within myself, I felt different somehow, like a huge stone was plunged into the waters of my soul. A great deluge of emotion inundated the surface. I smiled and teared and chuckled at once. Crazy, huh? I finally managed to say, but by then Broken's attention was fixed in front of her. Grant was digging through sacks of coins and stacking them on his desk. Thirty gold, he said, ten silver and eight copper pieces, minus a one percent tax for the processing fee. He skimmed five silver from a stack and added back one copper piece. That makes thirty and five and nine to be delivered to the recipient, Ashlyn. Broken, she corrected him, and immediately started stuffing her pockets with coins. Meanwhile, the constable retrieved a ledger from his desk and busied himself with recording the transaction. So, he said in the midst of writing, there was something about Glassboro of relevance to South. Something about gangs. Yeah, they're peddling crown elixir to the poor and turning them into royal slaves. And what does that have to do with South? Grant asked without looking from the ledger. My friend Roslyn, her parents are both addicted. They need our help. He shook his head and closed the tax log. I'm sorry, Miss Ashlyn, but what's happening to your friend falls outside my jurisdiction. She should make a report to the constabulary of Glassboro and file a complaint with the city officials. But they already know. Then that's their problem, he said, suddenly colder, more formal. He rose from his chair and rounded from behind his desk, a clear invitation for us to do the same. If there is nothing else of official business, you'll excuse me for cutting this short. As you can see, I've got plenty more work to attend to, so... Have you forgotten already, I cut him off mid-sentence, about the man who poisoned several citizens under your protection? The constable's forehead turned to wrinkles trying to comprehend. Crown elixir, I said to help him remember. At last he grasped what I was getting at and uttered the name, Dr. Edgar. We spent the next half hour going over Broken's story, Grant transcribing every word as legal testimony, more than every word in some cases. It was hard to tell with the writing upside down, but it seemed like every instance he'd written Edgar's name that he added some disparaging epithet. He must have still borne a personal grudge against the wayward doctor, much more so than me. Makes sense, I suppose. I was merely cheated while Grant had to suffer public shame after making false allegations. Against me, actually. But really, Edgar was to blame. That we all agreed on, and that we'd traveled downriver with a warrant for his arrest in two days' time at the first sight of dawn. In the meantime, we went our separate ways. I made a mental note of the day's remaining tasks and rattled it off to Broken while we walked out of the jailhouse and into the blinding, snowy streets. Lamp oil, bandages, and before we go home to sleep, I need to stop by the laboratory and the Marigold Mystics. The loonies? She groaned. Why are we going to see them? And what about my present? If we wait, the market will be closed. All right, all right. Shopping, lamp oil, bandages, then the other stuff. Apologies. Yes, she cheered and threw her arms into the air, her pockets jangling. I nearly toppled over from the weight of the coins as she tackled me in an embrace. Amidst laughing breaths, she gasped, Thank you, O Father of the Black Flame. And I found myself caught between our first hug in the Marigold Plaza, and when a cowering Chaka pinned me in place before the murderous Maddock, at once moved and paralyzed proud and afraid. 
Another stone crashed into the depths of the waters, its gravitas amassing with the earlier weight. Heavier than a sack of salt slung over my shoulder, if I had to give it a name, I'd call it responsibility. I carried it with me the rest of that day as we ventured through what stalls were open in the winter and into the shops surrounding the busy market streets. In between clothiers, we picked up what necessities we'd need before Broken could decide what she wanted to buy for herself. Two jugs of oil, an extra lantern, road rations, a hunk of soap, and a foreign cookbook. Later, we arrived where we began, South's old seamstress and tailor shop. It was the same place we bought the girl's indigo robes, only now she wanted an entire matching outfit. A hat just like her own, only of silk and the color indigo. A new cloak, fitted and slashed like they have in Glassboro, so that the robes show through, as well as long gloves and hose and tall black leather boots to match. Likewise, she demanded I be fitted for a new cloak and boots as well, and that she'd pay for it all, even the debt I owed on the indigo robes. Excluding the boots, we'd have to find a skilled cordwainer for those. The clothes came to nine gold, six silver, and nine copper pieces. More than twice as much money than we've made hawking coal and salt for months, gone in a flash in exchange of hands. It hurt to watch, but a promise was a promise, and besides that, this was the first time she had real money of her own. I could understand her want to enjoy the freedom that it grants. Still, I'll have to temper that, teach her how to make it last. That's what I thought as we left the shop and headed for the shoemaker. Though looking back at it now, it's obvious how much of a hypocrite I am. How much money do I still owe Van? 500 marigold gold. How am I ever going to pay that back? Maybe there's something worthwhile deeper beneath old home, but somehow I'm doubtful. We'll just have to put our hopes on the summer expedition. But those thoughts are for an uncertain future. At present, I'm more interested in the past. What might have gone differently had I kept my trap shut? We entered the Cordwainers like a couple of children ooing and awing at the much-expanded selection since last we paid a visit to Joseph Cobbler. As his name suggests, he's old blood in South, still dresses in elk furs passed down from his great-grandfather who made boots for the village's very first coal miners. And his stock reflected that. Every stitch of cloth and leather were done in the old frontier style, all short top-doe skin or cow leather with tough cord laces and heavy hobnails for trekking through the mud, nothing like what Broken wanted save for one pair at the front on display. They were trade-ins, boots someone must have bought off a roving caravan, only realizing her regret after the traders had passed through town. But the girl didn't care how they ended up here, or why the prior owner decided to abandon them. All she saw was that they were exactly the kind she wanted. Knee-high, black, and brass buckled at the sides with big wooden wedge heels. So what if they were a little oversized? She'd grow into them in a couple years' time. They won't last that long, I warned her. She disagreed. But they're practically new. It doesn't even seem like anyone's worn them before. That's not the point. Remember what I said about them rubbing through your bandages? Well, these things would blister even normal skin. I had her feel the rim of the collar where the buckle put pressure on the thin layer at the ankle and the lack of padded lining around the toes or at the heel. They're probably a cheap copy of what you saw in Glassboro. You're better off waiting until we go to the city and getting a real pair. But they look so pretty. Can't I have them, please? What's gotten into this girl, I wondered, oblivious and repeated. I already told you it's your money. 
though you should be careful not to spend it all at... Thank you, she said and hugged me again, and I sighed and called Joe over to fit me for a pair of heavy miner's boots. We spent one gold piece and maybe two minutes on our way to the apothecary's guild before Broken let out her first complaint. Apparently, the smooth soles and wood were slippery in the snow. She fell more than once in the hundred or so steps across the market, and already her heels were hurting from the hardwood wedges. By the time we were inside the guild hall, she was carrying them under her arm and making excuses about her old bandages being the cause of her discomfort. I patted her on the hat and replied, We'll see how you feel after we put in our order. As always, the first floor was busy with novices mixing winter aromatics. Elderberry, echinacea, and honey for the common chill. Ginger, basil, and black peppercorns for fever. And I smelled cinnamon, cloves, and turmeric as well. Ingredients which make a warming tea that sounded wonderful after coming in from the cold. Broken must have thought so as well. She ordered us two cups of the stuff on top of a 15-day supply of marigold bandages and just as much rosemary peppermint balm. She handed over one thick golden coin for the medicine. That made eleven in less than a day. Made me start to think that maybe money was more corrupting than ancient cursed artifacts. King Ogier laughed. That bastard's always listening. So I spoke to him as much as broken when I said, I need your help. The next several minutes we spent sitting on the steps, sipping spiced tea, waiting on the medicine, and discussing what happened with me, Nostius, Domnall, and Verva, while she was gone to Glassboro. I told her about the terrible things I'd said, and that that was the reason we needed to stop by the mystics, so that I could apologize, only I didn't know how to even start aside from groveling at their feet. Both Broken and the King thought that was a terrible idea, though neither of their solutions seemed right to me either. The girl wanted me to get them all presents, but I didn't think it would work, trying to buy back their friendship. Ogier's plan was just the opposite. Forget those envious, ignorant fools. You've already discovered the greatest source of power. Why weigh yourself down with the likes of them? In the end, we finished our tea before coming up with anything, and decided to head up to the laboratory without a plan. My hope was things would work out like they had been if I just tried to be myself. Which self? Or is that the wrong way of thinking? Fortunately for me, there wasn't time to ponder the question. Nastius was in, though Domnall was nowhere to be found. In his place, however, was someone I didn't expect. Verva. From the look of it, she was observing the journeyman at work as he transmuted little piles of various metal shavings into fully formed quarrel heads. I recognized the silvery sheen as being the same shade as Broken's Dragonlance bayonet, as my mace head, and as old King Ogier's blade. They didn't seem to notice us as we entered the lab, so I stole a short breath to steel myself. Stockpiling for the summer expedition already? I asked to catch their attention. Nostius picked the tapered spiked tip from a rug of canvas spread over the floor. He examined it close to his face, rolling it between his fingertips. When he seemed satisfied, the alchemist carried it aside to precisely the same workbench we used as an operating table and placed it in a row with a dozen identical others. Then he returned to the center of the canvas, where it was painted with the very symbol emblazoned on my flesh. An eye within a circle within a triangle within a triangle inverted, surrounded by the icon of the spirit Ouroboros and four lesser circles with images obscured by an equal number of iron retorts. 
Their necks stretched toward the center eye where liquid metals poured into a small clay mold. Verva tucked her notes into her robe and began filling each retort with its respective metal. I tried again to make friendly conversation, this time toward the mystic. I'm glad to see you here, Verva. I know you've been wanting to learn the real mysteries for a while and there's no one better to learn from. The words tumbled out of my mouth, contrived and awkward. Nostius takes notice. What do you want, Trog? Rude! Broken snapped. I expect dross like that from the wizard, but not from you. Why are you being so mean? I waved her down. It's fine, I said, and let my desire to respond in kind cool before replying. It took a few deep breaths, but eventually I answered, I came to say I'm sorry for what I said to you, to both of you. I glanced to Verva, then back to Nastius. I let myself become possessed by my obsession with power, and it made me angry that I didn't have it. I blamed everyone else. I'm sorry. I was wrong to have done that, and to have said all those things, especially right after you both helped so much during the procedure. Nastius said nothing, just stared down at his ill-fitted boots, his greasy black hair shadowing much of his face. Verva, on the other hand, abandoned her current task and stood looking at me teary-eyed, one hand pressed at the breast of her robes, her lips pinched together, uncertain what to say. So I spoke to her directly. I figured then was no worse a time to break the news. About our last conversation, I thought it over, and I've changed my mind. If you and the mystics still want to learn from us, my seer and I will do our best to share our knowledge with you. At once, I felt a tug at my sleeve nearly strong enough to rip the cloth. I followed up with, It won't be much, and you'll mostly be studying under Broken, not me. She's the one with the most talent and experience in performing the occult. All I could show you is some fundamental alchemy. But it seems that our friend has you more than covered there. The tugging lessened some. I knew the girl wouldn't be happy, and that I'd get an earful about it after, but all things considered... It'll be something to bring us together, something I'll desperately need her help with. I owe that to her after how I behaved, and for letting us get locked away in these cages. But that's for later. In the guild hall, Nostius uttered, eyes locked onto the brand on my forehead. Is that all you have to say? I considered for a moment if and how I wanted to tell him what I learned in the tunnels of Oldholm, recalled that I'd made a promise to share what knowledge I uncovered, and decided it was safe to at least share some. Tell Domnall that this, I point to the eye of Amgeen stuck in my socket, was unnecessary, but that he was partially right with his eyes on the inside theory. The pure vessel is you, and the Alkahest is made inside yourself. Implements and components help, I think, but it all comes to how clear your soul is, though I don't understand exactly what that means. The alchemist paused to mull over the implications of what I'd just told him. The only sounds in the room came from Virva, fervently scratching a quill to her notes, and broken itching her nose and cheeks through ragged bandages. Almost a minute passed like this, then Nostius spoke. It's like how the old texts describe the transmutation of the lapis. As above in the higher soul, so below in the mortal coil. Good to know if I had myself that eye. You might, interrupted Virva, if you dared peer inside your soul and could see through its shadow. Have I understood correctly? She added, asking me with a timidity like that she showed in the forest west of town. Yeah, the eye and other spirits help, though I think it'd be better to learn to transmute without them. I remembered how I spoke to the deputy in the jailhouse and heard Ogier hiss as my soul darkened as a consequence of the shame. That was until I heard Nostius say, Thank you, 
It was hard for him to let go of the grudge, but he forced it out, for sharing that with me. I'm sorry for what I said as well. The old man was being such a prat, and I... He spit into the corner. I was jealous that you'd progressed so quickly. It took me years to get to where you were in just a few months. It's all right. You'll have plenty of time to pass me up. Broken, Grant and I are going on a manhunt. We'll be gone at least a few days. I explained the rest to him about Edgar, the elixir, and what the girl reported about the city of Glassboro. By the end, the alchemist was glaring at me, though his mouth was curled into a grin. You son of a bitch. You were just going to go without telling me? I figured you'd be too busy with guild work and miss the chance to steal that bugger's notes. Tell the constable I'm coming along. Verva stepped forward, and I'd like to join as well. I've got brothers and sisters in Marigold who I'd like to give word of our final success in securing the wisdom of the Lord of Black Flame. She turned to face Broken and bowed deeply, and his profound seer, wise beyond her years. Are you sure? I started. It's likely to be dangerous. But then Broken interjected, surprised us all, and bellowed, You can come, novice, but I don't want any dead weight getting in the way. I expect you at the vault by midnight tonight. You're going to suffer your first lesson in the art of the Black Flame. Of all the transformations concurrent during those next two days, Broken's attitude amazed me the most. Despite her show in the Guildhall Laboratory, she did nothing but complain the whole way home that I decided on my own that we'd teach the mystics. Yet that very night when Verva showed up, sleepless shadows under her dark, crow-clawed eyes, the girl enlivened like I'd never seen her before. And the following night was the same. I'd returned from my studying, mining, and troll-hunting with Chaka to find the two chatting, their lesson apparently done. Come the morning of the second day, the two had become the fastest friends I've ever known. I suppose that isn't saying much, but it struck both Nostius and Grant more than our new clothes picked up from the seamstress an hour before dawn. We boarded the ferry pole boat looking cleaner and meaner than any hob south of the river's fork. I have to admit, Broken was right about the fitted ink-leather cloaks, and in my new boots I hardly felt the cold of the snow. The girl, though, didn't have such an easy time. Twice she nearly ruined her new indigo hat and black slashed cloak tripping over her cheap wooden heels. Would have ruined them if not for her staff and Verva beside her. The mystic came dressed in her usual layered crimson costume, a robe with immense sleeves and hood, and a black waist sash from which hung all kinds of pouches and satchels, and an athemi that by the glimmer of its pommel must have been cast from pure silver and from around her neck dangled an unfamiliar amulet in the shape of a hand, an eye embedded at the center of its palm. She and Broken were whispering about it to one another while Grant helped them onto the boat. Pain expressed itself on Nostius's pockmarked face. Spirits, Conti, what did you do? Don't tell me we're going to have to listen to these two blither like this the whole way to Glassboro. I apologized and told him there was nothing I could do. You could use the eye and transmute them into men he said, and we all laughed at that. Then Grant paid the boatman and we were off in pursuit of the fugitive Dr. Alan Edgar. The first few hours of our journey I spent asleep, dreaming of an ancient northern city where the mountain peaks had been shaped into sharp towers and archways, where over death-deep crevasses flew hybrid bridge buttresses, and where the windows were various shades of thick-colored panes. 
There were plazas as well, great flat expanses cut from mountaintops and decorated with bright yellow sigils of the sun. These artificial plateaus were populated by a thousand thousand pedestrians who, from my high vantage point, seemed no more to me than fleas or ants. It was old rhyme, just as Turnpin described it in his history, just as it remained in King Ogier's memory. I experienced his disgust watching the people gather together in worship before the clergyman. His father might have brought the religion to Sealand from their home, Yggdrasil, east across the ocean, but he'd have banded along with the practice of the occult if his people weren't so weak as to despair without it. He'd seen what happened when the masses lost faith. They'd find it again in the most degenerate of places, in the Fae or in Hobbes, or worst of all, in spirit gods too powerful and incomprehensible for the idiot herd to withstand madness. But now I have the eye again, and the secret to its strength, and my will to power is yet great, as is yours, Lord of the Black Flame. Together, we may rule over them with the might of gods and at last bring them into order. But that's not what I saw as I emerged from my dream. Not order, but fire and anarchy. The whole of South Ablaze, smoldering shingles atop caving gable rooftops, black as the burned forests, undergrowth choked by soot and ash, and all the waters of the canals made sulfurous by sabotage so that the very soil became poisonous and barren as the rock around Black Lake. And amidst this firestorm, dancing among the riot of panicked, fleeing corpses, was a blanched bone face with snout and antlers of an elk and eyes of smoke pinpricked with light that consumed all they saw in great swathes of fire. Then I awoke, warm despite the frigid winds whipping over the river as we drifted the southwestern cut of the deep. Apparently Broken had fallen asleep as well, hat in her hands, her body leaned nearly on my lap, her head of dreadlocks resting on my chest. I patted the top of her knotted hair and got my bearings, then scanned the cramped boat. There was Verva on the girl's opposite side, smiling and bright in the gray light of the afternoon, looking east into the untamed woods and to the jagged coast beyond. A stretch of unconquered land where wolves, bears, and will-o'-the-wisps reign as the only masters. Perhaps she was listening for a howl, or for the hoot of an owl from within the far forest. I listened as well, but the only sounds I heard were of the running of the river and the boatman at the bow breaking chunks of ice with an enormous spruce pole. Occasionally he'd miss a large chunk or just couldn't break nor punt around it fast enough, and the ice would strike and rock the small boat. Then the man would glance over his shoulder to check on us wayfarers. Seemingly on instinct, he always started with the stern. But I noticed that every time he did so, his eyes would flee just as fast as they alighted on the three of us armed and cloaked like a triad of hob-worshipping cultists. He exhibited no such haste in examining Grant in his pristine white constable's greatcoat, and even less so with Nostius, dressed in pale yellow apothecary's robes and grey-green travelling cloak. The boatman must have been a native of Marigold that he recognized the attire. I didn't think at the time that that might become a problem. My mind was set on what we'd find in Glassboro, and how much of the eye's power I might have to wield. Of course, as the river flows, we came upon the holy city of the Union Church by the first evening of our journey. By then, we were all glad to see the yellow-gold curtain walls peak over the sunset horizon, especially me. I hadn't the capacity to appreciate the city's aesthetic beauty the last time I visited. I was too blind, 
too afraid of being caught as some kind of hob and dragged down into a basement torture chamber. But just then, with eyes to see, I gaped awestruck at the resemblance of old and new rhyme. Without mountains to carve, the settlers of Turnpin's time raised their own in the form of a parapet wall buttressed at one side by watch spires with flying, covered, machicolated bridges where arrows and oil might rain down on invaders. On the other side flowed the river deep like a moat wrapping loosely around the walls while canals spread spider-like both into the city and out to irrigate the fields all frozen and still and snowy with winter. As we drew closer and punted into Marigold's Commerce Canal, we could see the smoke as well from all the fires burning. A mix of smells, sweet aromatics from the Apothecary's Guild, savory wood smoke from homes and taverns, but also the rank of refuse, of unwashed bodies, and unraked sewer drains that we saw plenty of as we floated toward the Rivergate checkpoint. I threw up my hood. A man in a guard box next to the gate shouted for the boatman to halt while he worked an enormous winch designed for two people. It took a few minutes, but eventually a red, rusted chain surfaced and spanned the water. Has there been another hob sighting? Grant asked. Nostius answered for the boatman. No, they just like to inspect every damned hair on your head if you're bringing in goods. Looking for contraband. We'll be fine once they see we're passers through. Here comes the deputy now. Strange there's only one. Sure enough, a single lawman marched from the guard box to our pole boat held hostage by the chain. He was hauling a gangplank on one shoulder, on his other, a partisan with a rust-crusted blade and a black patinaed spike at the butt end. The man himself was in just as rough condition. He wore no symbol of his station aside from a decaying iron cap. The rest of his clothes were layers of cheap rough spuns, dirty and thin as his unshaven cheeks. Where's your second? called Nastius. The deputy stuck his weapon butt-end in the frozen mud and heaved the gangplank across three feet of water. It struck the edge of the boat haphazard with a clatter. You damn well know we ain't got seconds no more. Ain't got raiment. Ain't got nothing since them pagans opened up shop. He spit into the water, looked at Verva, me, and Broken, then spat again. That where you came from, huh? Well, we got enough of them mystic loonies already ourselves, so if you ain't paying the tithe, tax, and tariff, you better turn yourselves around and punt back up river. No tariffs today, the apothecary replied as he and Grant rose to meet the man crossing the plank. We're pilgrims, not merchants. Just need a place to board for the night. The constable nodded and pulled out his purse, announced himself as the law in South, and that we were all his conscripted manhunters. Our true destination is Glassboro in pursuit of a township fugitive wanted for three counts of circumlocutory murder. So as my man said, we'll only need lodging till dawn. What's the fee for entry? Two sills and eight cops, but I don't care what you freaks say you are. I'm checking the lot of you. Like hell you will, spat Nostius, clambering unsteadily in front of Grant. Me and the woman are Marigold citizens. Our names are under guild registry. You've got no right to search us coming in and out unless we're trafficking goods. The deputy pointed out our packs, bags, and satchels. Looks like you got goods to me. In fact, you're claiming this here boat as a merchant vessel, ain't you? He asked the boatman, who murmured in compliance. Then the deputy continued. That's what I thought. Now each of you, hand over the money and another silver for the tithe, and let's get those bags opened up. What's everybody yelling about? Broken yawned, just waking up. We're going to be searched, I whispered to her. 
You don't have anything bad in your bag, do you? She rubbed her eyes and squinted in the dying light. I don't think so. Just food and mushroom pellets and medicine and Gerard. The skeleton, I lamented in sudden dread at what the marigold guard would assume if they found a whole human's remains stowed away in the girl's satchel. Then what might they make of the brand on my forehead and of the eye of Amgene? A flash nightmare put me back on the operating table, only this time without coca and crown to curb the pain. And what would they do to the girl once they discover her curse? Sounds of her screams as they left her to burn exposed to hob-excreted miasma echoed between my ears and imagination. I'll kill them first. It occurred to me without intervention of the voice of the king, though he spoke regardless. Give me lease over the motion of this mortal coil, and we'll cleave this fool's head from his neck. I admit, I was tempted, watching Grant hand over the gold, the silver, and several copper pieces. Then at last his pack for the deputy to rummage through. After, Nostius did the same with his satchel, albeit begrudgingly, and with more than one threat to report the lawman to his superiors. That didn't slow him any, and we were next. My hand moved instinctively to the hilt of Ogier's sword. No, wait. That'd be too bloody. Take up the mace and let me do the rest. I swung my pack from my shoulders and opened the flap as if to show the deputy I had nothing to hide. Meanwhile, I'd fished the mace out of its leather thong and gripped strong at the shaft end. I wanted momentum. One swing without need for the king to take more of me than he already had. One blow to the side of the head at the temple when the lawman would lean over to see under the shadow of the pack's flap. My fingers were trembling, sweat beating on my brow and neck in the icy wind. My heart tremored, too fast to really call it a beat. Go to sleep, I thought, as the deputy gave me a dirty look leaning forward to see just as I thought he would. Do it now! Please excuse me, deputy, interjected Verva, something wound about her fingers that hadn't been there a second before. The lawman turned his head, craning his neck to the side and exposing the target full in my face. Strike him down! What are you doing, Trog? I was waiting, watching the leader of South's Marigold Mystics, her hands arranged and entangled with a chain in the shape of a pentagon, a bright gilded pendulum suspended at its center that swung back and forth in front of her mouth as she formed the words, soft and suggestive. You're tired and cold and sick of this job. Your stomach is grumbling, your family is hungry. You just want another couple silver to feed them with and you'd be happy to let us go. The deputy's eyes glazed over as she spoke to him. He nodded in agreement at every assertion, drawing himself deeper and deeper under her spell till he said the words himself. That's right. I don't give a damn about checking your bags for no tariff. All I want is to go home and for my children to eat. Virva reached inside one of her many pouches and retrieved two coins of marigold silver. The man took them, grunted his approval, then lurched his way across the gangplank. A moment later, the chain disappeared beneath the water, and the boatman punted onward, shook his head, but said nothing. The rest of us were not so quiet. That was quite expensive, Grant started, entirely blind as to what had happened. More than twice as much as the entry fee last time we were here. And can you believe he'd tariff passengers on pole boat? I'm with Nostius. We will definitely report him to the standing officials come morning. The apothecary spun around on his bench to face the stern and said, You do whatever you want then to Verva. So we've been wrong about the mystics this whole time, or what? The hell did you do to that man? Nothing, really, she answered, then saw that I was watching her. She glanced down her nose, then back up into my eyes. It was a bit of suggestion, is all. A trick. 
Nowhere as intricate or potent as the black flame or alchemical transmutation. It seemed pretty impressive and potent to me, I replied. She looked to broken, still disoriented from sleep, and patted the girl atop her head. Thank you for saying so, Lord. I mean, Canty. I'm glad things worked out, but as I said, it isn't a thing to count on. It wouldn't have worked on a sharper man, nor one less desperate or gullible. And even then, my power has waned with age. Men were much easier to sway when I was young. Well, you didn't seem to have trouble to me. Her cheeks darkened in the shade of the evening. Thank you. Broken thrust her hat into the air to grab our attention. Are we there yet? She asked. I'm really, really hungry. It was fully night by the time we docked in the canal port and passed city curfew before we came to Guild City Inn and Tavern. The place was desolate, the common room empty but for the barkeep and a bored-looking serving boy sat asleep on a stool in the corner. Grant volunteered to pay our board, nearly a gold for each of us, even more outrageous than the trumped-up entry fee. Broken and I helped cut the price by cutting a deal with the barkeep. Neither of us would be able to sleep until morning, so we paid a silver each for seats in the common room plus another two so that the girl and I might have some leftover stew from the evening's supper. The rest of the night crawled by on its hands and knees, but at least it was warm at our table by the hearth. We passed most the time by studying, me reading deeper into Turnpin's history, and broken the occult tome that we stole from Bilar's place, a second piece of contraband the girl forgot to mention, but there was no one around to hear her whisper a dozen possible pronunciations of incantations to some unknown bit of witchcraft. From constitution, crystallization, ossification, petrified marrow, and coagulated blood. I don't get it, she said a few hours before the dim hints of dawn. Did you understand the last spell while you were learning it? She shook her head at me as much as the old unbound tome and asked, What about you? Just boring stuff. The history of the city and a schism in the church. I guess half of them believed that fairies had souls, but the others thought not. They fought a battle over it. The fey-loving marigolders versus the fey-hating new rhymers. So the new rhymers won? Not according to Turnpin. But I guess the fairy-friendly sentiment didn't last too long. I've never even heard of a time when Marigold wasn't famous for producing gremlin slaves. Broken yawned. Yeah, that's pretty boring. Do you think we could go shopping before we leave in the morning? You said they'd have better boots in the city. Ha! Finally ready to admit that I was right, Miss Ashlyn? Her cheeks puffed up. No. And don't call me that. I just want to get another pair is all, a burgundy pair so I can have different colors. And maybe some new robes to match. Red ones like Verva's. Like Verva, huh? Just don't ask for the same amulet she wears. I've only got one of these left. I pulled at the bottom lid of my pale eye and laughed a little. The girl didn't smile, so I followed up and said, It's only been a few days, yet it seems like the two of you are good friends now. Yeah, she answered, returning her nose to the brittle, unbound pages of her tome. Then with a softness of voice that verged on tears of joy, she's really nice. A few more seconds passed. She asked again, her voice firm. So, can we go shopping or not? She's embarrassed, I saw, and grinned, glad for it. Of course we can go, but try not to spend too much. The prices here are unbelievable. I don't know how the people can afford to live. They couldn't. I wish I'd have realized it then, how much worse the desperation had become since our last visit. 
I wish I'd remembered the iron scent of the slaughtered farm household, the biting stench of the hobgoblin, and the cannibal reeking of the ogre. Come dawn, our companions met us for an expensive breakfast in the common room. Twenty coppers a plate for some flaky pastry fried in egg and dashed with cinnamon. Delicious, but it made me curious how much of South's money Grant was willing to spend to hunt down a single man. I wondered, what's the difference between justice and vengeance? But I never bothered to ask. I knew the constable and king would give me the same answer, the law. Yet how does that work when the law is different from place to place? We'd have that answer soon enough. With breakfast done, what was supper for me and broken? We agreed to split up and meet back at the canal port once we'd each finished our separate business. Nastius and Virva went off to their respective guilds. Grant to find a boatman willing to punt us southwest, and myself with the girl in tow marched through the frozen streets toward the center city plaza. Sleepy and stubborn, Broken waded in her awful boots in the hard-packed snow more stably than she had the soft, powdery stuff in South. The cold and a new morning's bandages seemed to help as well. We could actually enjoy our walk through the city, sightseeing masterpieces of stained glass and masonry, Marigold's signature gold-yellow perfused into the stone. And no building was more beautiful than the monumental Union Church. No matter where we stood, its twin minarets peaked visible with glimmering sun on the right, and to the left, silver moon embellishments. The whole of it shined full of light in its sharp arches, and endless buttresses flew into the surrounding structures so that the whole city grew out of that sole institution, like the heart tree of a deep, wild woods, tall and sprawling and teeming with life, yet utterly uninhabited. Hardly a head was visible the whole way to the plaza, and even there proved more desolate than South's Market when it was still a mere village. Gone were the merchant wagons that had populated the space prior, and equally absent was the heavy scent of perfume and pretentious chatter of the wealthy. Only stinking whispers and unwashed bodies were left, homeless beggars with eyes that spied me and the girl as we browsed shop fronts for yet another pair of boots and robes. I didn't think anything of them at first, not till Ogier took note of a particularly ragged fellow who seemed always in line of sight no matter which way we turned. I couldn't see his face, he had his hood pulled forward as much as mine, and the rest of him was wrapped in layers of dirty brown linen. It never occurred to me that he wasn't much different than myself at one time. My only thought was that in a city as strict as this, he probably wouldn't be allowed inside any legitimate businesses. With that hope, we stepped inside a clothier's shop larger than the township jailhouse. Silverspun Outfitters, the sign said as we entered. They were retailers selling all sorts of clothes, cloaks, hats, gloves, shoes, and other apparel, from farmers' winter boots and summer sandals to fur-collared cloaks, puffy yet flat hats, and brightly colored vests of silk-polished leather. As soon as we entered, a shopkeep and a tailor were ready to wait on us hand and foot so it didn't take long for Broken to find what she was looking for. A pair of burgundy-red boots, knee-high, laced, fur-lined, with heels of layered leather and hobnailed soles. Then they sold her on a matching velvet dress, another hat, a flat, puffy burgundy cap, and a doe-skin side satchel to replace the canvas bag in which she hid Gerard. Everything was sized and refit to the girl's measurements, even taking into account her age and estimated growth. I'd never seen such diligent service before, and not once did they question the reason for her bandages. 
Nor did I say a word when they told us the price. Fifteen gold pieces evenly, and that was a discount. I couldn't bear to watch the transaction, so I stared out the storefront window instead and saw the ragged fellow milling about not far from the doorway. I had my mace in hand as we exited the outfitter, hoping that would be enough to ward off the fool. It wasn't. Instead, as soon as our stalker saw the weapon, he produced one of his own from beneath his ragged folds. I couldn't call it a knife. It was more like a huge, crude, sallow spike hewn from the bone of some terribly familiar animal. My mind couldn't place it, but my sinews knew to fear the jagged point. Like a fairy fears iron or a hob does silver. And it seemed Broken's instincts knew it too. She gasped. I hadn't told her we'd been followed, and so she stood still as stone that moment the vagrant rushed the dozen paces that lay between him and us. The quietest stake flew in his fist like a feral dagger aimed straight down for my heart. But I was ready. I sidestepped and cracked the man in the arm hard, hoping to break it, disarm him, and end the fight. No luck on my part. His thick layers of linen cushioned the blow, and he spun, eager for a second lunge. I went to dodge again, then stopped. I'd positioned Broken behind me with that last exchange. Moving aside would have put her in danger. So there I was, stuck under the shadow of the jagged bone stake, panicked. I braced the mace shaft with both hands overhead and caught the vagrant at the wrist. He isn't human, I realized by the weight of his strength, the caustic stench half hidden by the odor of his linens and his face underneath, a thing half transmogrified, tusks, wiry hair, and eyes white as milk. Now... The sword, before it finishes its... But Ogier was too late. In a sudden burst of strength, the half-hob's body tore free from the rags, doubling its mass and snapping through the ash-wood shaft like it was a twig. I'm dead, I thought, and I would have been if the girl hadn't pulled me back an inch out of distance of the ogre's stake. Now, she shouted, the two of us toppling backward, while the animated skeleton of Gerard the Giant Slayer thrust forth with an assembled bayonet staff dragon lance. We watched from the ground the mithril blade punch soundly through hair and skin tough as boiled leather, through muscles and bones bigger than bulls, into the ogre's heart that exploded in bright white fire emanating from the extraction wound. Are you all right? I asked Broken once I was sure the hob was dead. We were both out of breath, on our backs on the snowy ground. A few of the sparse shoppers and store owners started to gather around. The girl assessed herself, then moved on to her belongings. Just a little wet, she said, but no stains or tears or anything. She was talking about her clothes. I couldn't help myself but to laugh at that, and she started to giggle too. I'm sure we looked like a couple of drunken fools, chuckling and stumbling, helping each other to our feet, and gathering what kit we'd dropped during the scuffle. By the time we'd collected everything and stowed Gerard safely in his new doe-skin home, the crowd burgeoning around us had grown twice in number. They were whispering to each other. I heard the word blasphemy come up more than once and thought we'd better meet Grant and the others at the canal port before the church got word of a couple of occultists. Come on, I told Broken, throwing up my hood. We need to go. Then a hole formed among the crowd of whispering spectators and through it marched what I had hoped to avoid. They were a Union Church shield maiden and her companion champion. The former in full dress, pale as the moon is white, with sleeves, gloves, hood, and veil leaving no skin exposed. Only her silver-blonde hair showed where it flowed like a cape as low as her thighs. 
The latter of the two was a man taller than any human I'd ever seen. He too was covered but in gold-colored cloth, medallion belt, cloak, hood, and black lacquered mask. The face of a grizzled warrior of centuries past, bearded and mustached, and he wore on each arm a shield the size and shape of a door, one silver with a lunar sigil, the other red iron emblazoned by a symbol of the sun. The champion slammed his silver shield on the ogre's bone stake where it lay on the snow. To thine eternal matron's shadowed womb return, thou wayward son, uttered the maiden, and at once the quietest spike erupted in white flames, evaporated the snow, and exposed the plaza pavement beneath. Then they turned their attention to me and broken. Use the black flame, the alkahest now, screamed the old king, but after driving my friends away after Deputy Boone and the temptations on the pole boat, I was afraid that using the eye would mean losing control more than I already had. So I hesitated, and in that time the shield maiden spoke another incantation. In union of the wise patriarch and of the eternal matron, we bequeath this gift of the father, his son's inheritance. The champion banged his shields together, loud as a clap of thunder like a death wand going off. It echoed in the sky, and brightness emerged in the gray overcast. From darkness light, from light return them to darkness, thou divine sun. The maiden finished, retribution. I never saw the lightning strike, only felt it like a fire set to my every nerve. This was your fault, Trog, Ogier makes sure to remind me. I think he said it a thousand times, and in every instant he was right. We got caught because I was afraid, because I hesitated. Now Broken is being made to suffer my mistake with me. She suspended in a gibbet cage identical to mine, shivering and hungry and in pain as constant and as nauseating as the heavily scented oil lamp. They stripped us both of our belongings when they locked us down here. Weapons, packs, the clothes off our backs, and the bastards even took the girls' bandages. It puts perspective on how much better our lives have gotten, losing everything in an instant. No, not in an instant. I should have seen this coming. I would have if only I'd kept my eyes open. I'm sorry, I say to Broken huddled in her cage, hugging her legs cold and alone with the serpent's curse. She doesn't answer. Instead, there's movement in other cages hanging aside of ours. Spindly fingers appear around the steel bars. Some burn and snatch themselves back, but others more transformed grip steadily as their master's nasty, furry faces rear from the shadows into the flickering light. Ears and nose like a cat's with mouth and eyes like a goblin's, milky white and razor fanged, the hair covering their bodies like tiny spines, patterns of blue, gray, green, and yellow. Gremlins. These are the first I've seen with my own eyes, though there's no mistaking their kind for any other. The little hateful things hiss at the sound of my voice in their primitive sylvan tongue, casting aspersion toward me and broken, I'm sure. They despise all humankind for their torturous conditions, and these ones have yet to be made into proper slaves. I'm wondering if that's what will happen to us. If we will be sold as slaves, or if they'll just execute us once they're done with their experiments. Would it be a public execution? Could Grant and the others rescue us, or would they be forced to watch? Or perhaps they've moved on and gone to Glassboro. It wouldn't be beyond the constable to put the law ahead of our lives. But what about Nostius and Verva? They wouldn't abandon us, especially not the mystic with how well she's taken to Broken. I've got to find a way out of here, I think, and prepare again to transmute the Alkahest, 
Without black flame, the sword, or the wisdom of the king, I find the eye within myself, see it bright within the black of the lake. I speak the incantations and the great spirit's names. I focus it all to the brand and to the eye of Amgine, and nothing. I slump back in my cage, and it sways along with the shaking gibbets of the surrounding gremlins. Arrogant trog and a coward, if you want to save yourself and the girl, you will require my power. Let us try together. Even without the flame as catalyst, we may be able to render these bars and escape. Maybe, I contemplate, watching Broken bald, motionless in her prison of pain. I call out to her again. Broken, are you awake? Can you hear me? There's something I want to tell you. Conti, she whimpers, it hurts worse than I remember, and I'm cold and hungry and I want to go home. My heart breaks. I'm so sorry, I say, louder to be heard over the snarling gremlins. Maybe we can go home, but I have to tell you, I haven't yet because I was afraid of what you'd think. But when you and Chaka found me in the tunnels, when I used the sword to transmute the Alkahest, I had to let Ogier's soul access the eye, and my mind, and I think a part of my soul. And he's still here, inside me somewhere. If I let him take over, he says he might be able to get us out of here. No! She shouts, sitting up now, salty tears like acid droplets running down her cheeks. But broken, I start. She climbs to her feet. I don't want to escape with that mean old man. I want to save Roslyn and go home, and we can teach Verva and the mystics like you said, and you can be my dad, and I won't have to be alone ever again. All right, I say, simultaneously overtaken by feelings of admiration for the girl's strength and of shame, that even after all she said, I'm still tempted to grant power to the king anyway. But I promise I won't, for her sake, so long as I can keep her safe by my own strength. We'll find a way ourselves. I pray to the spirits for insight and get a miracle instead. A door squeaks open off in the far darkness, spilling lantern light over the church dungeon floor. It's more of a pit, really, a chasm of iron spikes, spots missing where the silver ones had been extracted and sold, and spanning it is a broad stone bridge with rust-filled holes and marks where once stood a series of gates and rails and probably a canopy to keep Fay from escaping proximity to humanity, to spur on transmogrification. Now, though, the bridge is crumbling, just sturdy enough to hold up to the pair of approaching footsteps, one soft as slippers, the other heavy and clambering as oversized boots. Nostius. I knew before seeing him enter the room along with a round, hunched figure in gold and silver robes. A member of the church, I assume. He's talking with the apothecary, apologizing for the absence of Hobbes, yet eager to show him the new specimens. Unlike any fey cursed we've seen thus far, even of those mentioned in the archives. Because Van had that book stolen. They must not have gone through our things yet, I think. Then the man in the Union robes comments of the bag of occult bones and the tomes of evil magic. And we were hoping you could examine some sulfurous substances the prisoners were carrying as well. Sure, Nostius grunts. He looks at us, his face half horror, half disgust. The man nods. I had the same reaction when I saw them the first time myself. Just think, we had these demons running about right under our noses. What would we do without Chalquar and Malzell? Go broke by the looks of it. So much for the miasma research. The man starts to apologize again, but the apothecary cuts him off and points him toward my gibbet. I don't want to hear excuses why the patriarch can't handle his own purse. Just open this up so I can take a closer look. Open it? Without a shield maiden present? But we don't know what dangers this... Just do it, 
ordered Nostius, shoving the robed man nearly over the edge of the bridge and into the spikes below. Or else I'll be talking with the guild masters as to why they should abandon this city just like the rest. The man starts at a shout, You! You wouldn't! Then falls to a whisper, You wouldn't dare! You must know what it's like out there, people turning in the streets, ogres and hobgoblins, and I've heard there are hags even. If your guild leaves, that's half our tithes. The church will die, and without us, those demons will slaughter the whole of Sealand. Then you better do as I say and open the damned cage. He glances nervously at the door, but fortunately the Union clergyman doesn't notice, nor does he see Nostius pull a cloth from his pocket. I can smell it from here, the same stuff he used to make my anesthetic only ten times as concentrated. As soon as the man turns to open my cage, the journeyman alchemist smothers him with the drug-sodden cloth. His body slumps all at once, leans against the steel bars of my gibbet. Then the cage sways under his weight, and he slips between me and the bridge. A second passes as he plunges into the dark. There's a hard, wet sound. I think I would vomit if there was anything in my stomach to retch. Nostius pulls out a lockpick and springs open my cage, a skill he must have picked up from when he was a kid running gin for Domnall. Or maybe he figured it out between studying metallurgy and theorizing about mechanized weaponry. Either way, experience or hobby, with his help, I lunge carefully onto the bridge and collapse, my legs like boiling water. Get broken, I tell him, but he's already on it. Her door squeals on its hinges, and I force myself up to help her onto the bridge. She winces as I take her hand and again, as her blistered feet pad on the hard floor. I look to the alchemist, staring anxiously toward the door, and say, We need to get her medicine. She can't run around like this. He stares at the door another few seconds, holding his breath until he sighs and answers, Yeah, just give me a second. And he's working on the cages again, closing and locking them. What are you doing? We've got to get out of here. Keep it down, he whispers, unless you want to say goodbye to the summer expedition. The first lock groans and coughs with a clunk. He moves on to the second. If the church finds evidence I'm involved in breaking you out of here, they'll cut their funds and probably persecute the whole guild as blasphemers. They've already started doing it with the mystics. Virva nearly got arrested just trying to visit her old guild hall. Whole thing's been appropriated by the church. The second lock moans, clunks. There, now it looks like you magicked your way out. Come on, they've got your things this way. We follow Nostius out of the dungeon and into an antechamber that served as the dead clergyman's office. It reminds me of Grant's, albeit harsher with lantern light and twice as messy, yet just as sparsely furnished with desk and ledgers and a humongous iron safe gaping ajar in the corner. Our packs, clothes, and weapons are strewn inside. Crown cap pellets are the first thing I find as Nostius describes the escape plan for us. We're going to make it look like we broke out on our own. He will give us as much time as he can, a few minutes at most, to meet Grant out in front of the church, and he'll take us to Virva, who should have secured a boat out of the city by now. But to make this work, he says, watching the open door, I'm going to have to sound the alarm that you two have broken out. They know that I'm here, both the guild and the church. If I just up and vanish, then they'll know I was involved. Nostius tears his eyes from the door to us. So you'll have to hurry. We'll be fine, I say, half listening, busy applying balm on the girl's ravaged skin. He's gone in a flash of green and yellow, the thud of his boots echoing more and more faintly as we start on Broken's bandages. It's a couple of minutes before we dress, and another couple till our packs are ready and our arms full from the girl's wanton shopping. 
There is no way we'll make it with all this. I tell her as much, that she'll have to choose to leave some things behind, but hungry and sleep-deprived, she's resistant. Another minute we spend fighting over it, and in the end, she agrees to leave her old side satchel and unbearable boots. Then at last we're gone. It's a straight shot, no side passages to get lost down, just an underground corridor and spiral stairs till we emerge at the surface out of a false pillar. My whole body swivels, disoriented exiting the unexpected hidden passage, as if we materialized out of thin air into this... room. I don't know what else to call it. A dome of gold glass glows like a sun over the smooth stone floor, lime-washed and painted with a crescent moon and surrounded by true pillars. And between the columns, tapestries hang from ceiling to floor. They're woven with sentinel images of champions and shield maidens whose guard obscures what should be an easy search for the enormous polished silver and gilded iron doors. Footsteps sound from without the ring of pillars, a heavy set growing distant, others approaching from the same direction. Then, faster than broken and I can duck behind a tapestry, they cross into the circle, the long, blonde-haired maiden and her champion lugging those obnoxious shields. We were too slow, though at least now we know which way is out, through the two bastards who put us here in the first place. I draw Ogier's blade, but Broken's ahead of me. She has already summoned Gerard, and in the edge of my vision I see a mithril blur as the skeleton hurls the dragon lance straight for the maiden's heart. The champion dives, and with his soft silver shield receives the spear's harder wolfram and iron. It bites right through and into the man's shoulder. Go! The girl orders her minion forward, and I rush along with him at the command of the king. Gerard grabs the lance shaft while I move to flank. A mistake. We've left the maiden unattended, and she's finished an incantation just as the champion clangs his shields, a clap of thunder loud as a death wand and I watch the remains of the giant slayer dissolve in an arc of metallic lightning. All but his skull is rent to ashes, the bit of bone left sent clattering across the floor. Then the instant passes, and I'm next. I can feel it in my feet, the accumulation of electricity, as the maiden repeats her incantation. The champion's shield swings to meet its pair, but I'm looking past him where Broken stands, my head full to bursting with the old king's screams. You're defeated, Trog, unless you trust me. I agree. I hope she'll understand that this is the only way to protect her, to open my soul and the eye and the brand to the spirit of King Ogier, and another I don't expect. The Lord of Fear, together with the Tyrant King, give and take simultaneous possession over my body, so that it is me who drives the Mithril Sword into the floor to absorb the Ark without knowing how such a thing is even possible. Neither, it seems, does the Champion in front of me, gawking, stunned as I draw the blade out electric with power, and with my opposite hand throw a satchel of black flame. But the man's reflexes are fast. He brings his shields together to save himself from the sudden explosive transmutation. Smaller without the invocation, yet surely enough to dissolve most of him. So I'm surprised when the flame clears and the man stands utterly unscathed, aside from patina and rust scoured from the faces of his shields. Of course, the king thinks, equally unperturbed, they're pure iron and silver. So even the Alcahest has its limits. No matter, he scoffs and I cock my left arm like I'm about to toss a javelin. It was my father's line who brought their religion to Sealand, and it shall be I who punishes them for daring to bear my own arms against me.
The air crackles. Muscles spasm as electricity travels from Ogier's blade to my arm and across my back. From shoulder to shoulder, into my raised hand it takes shape, a spike of white lightning hardly contained in the grip of mortal fingers. The pain is immense, like my heart might explode out of my chest, like I stuck my hand inside a furnace. Yet my body twists, uncoils, and I hurl the electric lance into the conductive shields and watch the champion stiffen, seizure, then collapse unconscious. The light of the eye of Amgine dims. My vision fades to shades of gray. I stagger forward and fall to my knees, hear Broken calling me. Blinking, I see her looming over the incapacitated champion. Time skipping. One second she's wrenching the dragon lance from his shield, the next she's beside me, warding off the maiden who I turn to find has produced a knife too small to be a dagger, more like a triangular-edged spike forged from mithril. Mithril. But alchemy is banned by the church, I think. Then my priorities snap back into place. We need to escape. Broken helps me to my feet, and with the reach of her lance, keeps the maiden at distance till we're on the other side of the tapestries. The entrance's double doors, shining bright as daylight, gape open to the outside world. Leaning against one another, we limp quickly as we can and cross the threshold where Grant finds us hobbling down the Union Church stairs toward the landing below. The rest is a blur till we're on the boat. It's a bigger one this time, though I'm not sure what kind. I don't really look as broken and I are shepherded aboard. I hear Verva's voice making suggestions to the boatman, and in flashes see Nostius and the constable readying their weapons. Time skips. A shot is fired as we approach the city walls and there's a twang of a crossbow. Someone falls overboard, splashing as he hits the icy water. We cross the checkpoint unchecked, exit west from the canal into the silver quick southwest, leaving Marigold behind, drifting onward for Glassboro, for darkness.